0: Hello, everybody, and this is Peter Ravella, co-host of the American Shoreline Podcast. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other host of the show. Coming up, the best of 2019 podcast from the American Shoreline Podcast Network.
1: Part one of the best of 2019 podcast. That's right. We had to but break it into two separate shows here. We did a lot of stuff in 2019, Peter, and uh, we just thought for the holiday period, it'd be nice to distill, take, you know, when they make maple syrup in uh, <laughs> New Hampshire, it's all about the rendering they down. Take, they take 14 gallons Is that right? of uh, sap. Really? To make one gallon of maple syrup. maple syrup. So that's basically what we've done here. Wow. And we just couldn't, we made two gallons. I, I, I love have to say <laughs> we made two gallons. And you're in
0: gallon one here. That's right. And our best of coverage for 2019 brought to you by our good friends at Coastal Transplants out of North Carolina, Steve Mercer and his team. Find them at coastaltransplants.com when you need to restore a dune in and replant shoreline dune systems with native dune plants. They grow it, they install it, they get it permitted.
1: Great company, CoastalTransplants.com. Well, Dr. Havork, it's great to have you on the show today. And, you know, we're going to dive so deep into the subject of uh, carbon sequestration and the work that you are doing here. But I think it would be really helpful just to start broad. Let's talk about co2 and why it's a problem just broadly you know we, we hear about it on the on the news it, we're pretty conversant now that that we have a greenhouse gas issue <laughs> but but let's just back up and in, in your words tell us a little bit why that's just an issue
2: so the uh, there's a large amount of co2 or sorry large amount of carbon stored as uh, fossil fuel in the earth and um, we extract this and use it for many purposes for for fuel for um, heat light uh, for making plastics for all kinds of purposes, when we extract the uh, fossil fuel and use it, um, we release the byproducts. Bi- now, many of these are regulated, um, and we are not allowed to release them. We have to clean it up and mm-hmm. nitrous and oxide, for rest, example, pr- and, and and all the um, many particulates, of the particulates, mm-hmm. um, uh, the the all the things that would that would make that you can see or smell. we we are supposed to. Um, avoid releasing. Uh, The thing that we're still allowed to release that we're talking about today is the carbon dioxide. So when you uh, burn something, you take the carbon from fossil fuel and you um, add oxygen and extract energy and what you have left that you let go is water vapor and carbon dioxide.
0: Right. And you know, that's one of the things I remember from organic chemistry was perfect conduction or uh, combustion or complete combustion produces carbon dioxide and water. Right. And it's incomplete uh, combustion that produces all the stuff in, at a, coming out of a cartel pipe that we are concerned about, uh, nitrous oxides or whatever these other pollutants are. Mm-hmm. But the intended result of combustion is carbon dioxide and water.
2: Right. And at this time, we have, are releasing it to the atmosphere. Now, carbon dioxide is not uh, harmful to your to your health, in in normal convert, uh, concentration, it's 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 in fact a um, byproduct of uh, all the uh, energy production of all living things. Mm-hmm.
0: Respiration, it's our exhale is yes. CO two.
2: So it's it it's not classified in the same way as the other uh, 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 products of waste products of combustion.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, carbon is also kind of a. I mean, I'm just I'm remembering back to college now, but. Carbon is a kind of a, a magical uh, element, element, in that it can be, it's it can like attach to anything, right? Or or it, it's got it's got the ability to be bonded four times or something something like that is that correct
2: that's, that's one reason it's a,
0: it's a let's do a little bit of let's do the periodic table yeah, now, tell us about carbon and the benzene ring come on no. we can we can take them there <laughs> hang with us through audience people we're going to talk about organic chemistry here
2: well it, it, it um it, no we're not good because we're, we're going to focus on the, the we are per- we're going to get to that okay of carbon, okay we are going to get
0: to that but i want to say one thing uh, dr Havorka, which i think is something that people maybe don't realize, is that when you burn a gallon of gasoline, we produce a, it produces a lot of carbon dioxide. And I think I looked this up, right? I want to say that a gallon of gasoline weighs about 6.3 pounds. I can't remember exactly. And when you burn a gallon of gasoline, you get 19 pounds of carbon dioxide. And you're thinking, well, how the hell... But, of course, that's a matter of organic chemistry. It's very straightforward that you're that add, is true.
2: You're adding the oxygen into the yes. – you're making, taking carbon and making it carbon dioxide. Right. Um, and if you have doubt about the reality of this, you can remember the other thing that's released during burning is water vapor. Mm-hmm. And so if you – on a cold day, if you go out and look at something um, that's combusting, like um, a, a tailpipe of your car or yeah. a, a chimney, you'll see uh, – uh, white stuff, yeah. And that's not smoke. That's steam. That's oh. water vapor. Though, so there's twice as much water vapor as CO2 released. Really is that combustion. right? Wow. So, so if you want to know where CO2 is invisible to our eyes, um, we don't we don't see it, but you can see the water vapor because it, 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 when it condenses in the atmosphere, you can see it, and so I it see. gives you a clue where yeah. CO2 is coming out from a, a combustion process.
0: We produce a lot of it, I think, it, from what I've looked up, and you have, correct me here, but the human-produced carbon dioxide contribution to the atmosphere somewhere around forty million tons a year. Does that sound right? Well, it
2: depends on what what geographic and what division, but it's large. There's, there's it's a lot. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of CO two released to the
0: atmosphere. Coal combustion, oil combustion, natural gas, which is a better uh, fuel, produces less CO two, although contributes substantially. Mm-hmm. And the one that you mentioned in our sort of Pre discussion that I really and Tyler and I were talking about cement manufacturing. What?
2: <laughs> yeah. What? Well, that one is not a that one does have a combustion process because okay. you uh. make cement by heating limestone. Uh. But, it, but it also releases CO two during the process of of making the the uh, cement from from the they okay from the uh, limestone. You release the some of the CO two as part of that process. Okay. Um. You. You release also a lot of CO two during during reduction of iron to make steel. Really? So, yeah.
0: Okay. So, so there's
2: many many processes that um, release that release CO two. It's very um, fundamental in our in our um, right, our industry, our culture, and our, the things we need to.
0: It's ubiquitous on the planet. We're a carbon-based life form. I heard that on Star Trek.
2: And we're we're, we're really, yes.
0: (laughs) Aren't we? I think we're, aren't we all made out of like a a lot of carbon? I think we are.
2: Right. And we we fundamentally love it. Um, But, so the thing I said before about Mm -hmm. we can't see it with our eyes is the critical thing about understanding how our activities are impacting climate, which is. Right so it it's not because it's it's toxic at the concentrations we're releasing it it's because it's uh it that it's not only our eyes that matter okay when light from the sun comes through our atmosphere it's all the wavelengths so when you get into the the uh infrared the heat Mm -hmm. wavelengths they interact strongly with carbon dioxide okay
0: let's walk down that path a little bit there i think that's important so Sunlight is obviously a composition of different wavelengths of, of light that have different energy characteristics. This is what comes from space, hits the Earth. It's what's happening with infrared and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere.
2: Well, I am not an atmospheric physicist, so okay. I'll keep it really simple Let's because simple. I don't want to tell your viewers lies. And I, I, okay. might, I might get off. The, I love of that my, about <laughs> scientists—always
0: very careful, fact-based. Thank you so much. I accept that caveat. But,
2: but, um, the, but the fundament that's that's important is that um, if you were looking at a carbon dioxide plume with infrared eyes,
3: hmm.
2: um, you would see black. It would be so. You so. Let me follow this on huh. an analog. Your eyes see the wavelengths in the light spectrum from right. red to pur- um, purple so all uh, uh, right so so something that where that absorbs a lot of the light energy looks black right? And, right and then you touch it the hot asphalt with your feet and you realize it absorbed the light energy turned into heat energy wow right. so, great so if you have that's fabulous if I you're working that. in the infrared which we our eyes can't see but if we use an infrared camera for mm-hmm. example. Um, and there's a and there's a concentration of CO2. You can see it. It it'll will be, be black. Be, it'll be absorbing that uh, uh, that energy coming from the sun. Gotcha. And, and turning it into heat energy. So
0: the visible spectrum, which is your eye is actually picking up the reflection of light. That's how you see color and things. And then you when the infrared spectrum hits a co2 plume it's getting absorbed there so there's no reflection it appears black is that and so and it, it's very detectable and it's being turned into heat and being turned into heat okay that's the next part tell us how that works how does how does well it's infrared increase well how does it how does it What I guess is energy is retained in the atmosphere in some form here. Yes. So can can you? I know you're not the atmosphere person, but I'm
2: I'm not atmosphere. The atmosphere is a really complicated thing, and and people get confused. And I actually don't want to add to confusion. Okay. It's got many layers that each one acts separately. (laughs) Um, The the key thing to understand is by changing the composition of the atmosphere, we change its properties to retain heat. And okay. I think, I think I, I'll leave you to talk That's to an atmospheric great. physicist to get all right. the details of exactly how this occurs because right. it's, it's, it's really complex. And, okay. um, but the, but the, simple fa- the simple part of it is not complex. It's very straightforward.
1: Right. And so just to kind of the way I'm looking, thinking about it as you're describing it is that the Earth is kind of a closed system. It has so much carbon in it. The carbon was in the Earth and I'm actually, we'll save that conversation for another day of how it got there. But I, I am curious about that. And we are taking it from a place where it's not in the atmosphere. It's in our system, but it's not in the atmosphere. And we are changing it through combustion, and we are putting it in the atmosphere. That's the that's the basic thing. And when we do that, it we're trapping more heat.
2: So, so let's just take a minute about what carbon does when when people are not influencing it. Yeah, and explain that because we'd love to hear that. That, um, so the it's a cycle the um the uh plants take up the carbon as part of their photosynthetic activity right, right. they the take car- cycle. they take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere turn mm-hmm. it into plant material um we'll just imagine sugar carbon yeah and, um so some of those materials are buried mostly um the prolific providers are plankton in the ocean so, right. so they're taking co2 from the atmosphere that's dissolved in the ocean so that's uh, when the atmospheric concentrations go up, the ocean concentrations go up, too. Indeed. Because they're in communication. Yes. It's a solution. So, right. you, So you see in the reverse occur when you open a, a carbonated beverage Of your that you prefer to think about. Um, mm-hmm. Depending on the time of day, you imagine your carbon... Be-
0: <laughs> and, <laughs> it's and, either a soda or a good and, and craft beer in Austin, will, one of the two. <laughs> it will,
2: it will, it will uh, re-equilibrate with the atmosphere, and you'll see bubbles come out of it when you open it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you change the... the if you wanted to inc- put the bubbles back in, you just increase the carbon dioxide content huh. above it, and it would go it, back into solution. And that's what's mm-hmm. ha- happening to the ocean and inf- influencing every every organism that lives in the ocean, too.
0: That is absolutely a big deal, and something we've read quite a bit about uh, and covered on Coastal News Today is the acidification of the ocean. It changes the, uh, the concentration of, I guess, it's bicarbonate or carbonate in solution and... Uh, all of carbonic those. acid is it? Carbonic acid yes. is that it, which is it affects the, the whole shellfish, but it affects the whole natural system in ways that are measurable now.
2: Yes, um, it's quite it's quite measurable and and uh, quite a big impact. And and if you're talking about how long the the exhaust the CO2 that you released from your driving your yeah. car today, it goes yeah. up in the atmosphere, but then yeah. it's stored in the ocean so it'll be there for quite a while. That's hundreds tens of hundreds of years and going around. Um, so let's let's finish this Yeah, I'm let's, sorry. let's finish the cycle without without um, people. The, okay. the 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 CO2 that's in the that was taken from the atmosphere is taken up by the plants whether out of the at- mm-hmm. air or out of the out of the ocean and it falls to the bottom. It's buried. Um Either as a coal, if it falls to the bottom on land, it could be a coal. If it falls to the bottom in the ocean, it may become oil or huh. gas. Um, and hmm. and then, of course, um, those are slowly released. They don't stay forever. When the continents erode, those those materials are released back to the atmosphere. And we're
0: talking geologic time geologic here, geologic time, millions of years, millions of, of years. processes
2: that that the cycle goes round and round. Well, we've mm-hmm. we've speeded up that one of the transfers from the um, from the Storage in the earth to the atmosphere, okay, and, and that speeded up storage in the ocean
0: substantially. I would say, right, right, and because we extract it and then we convert it uh, through combustion or other uses into uh, a, an, a gas, a gas form of the carbon and CO two and, and carbon monoxide, carbon oxides. I believe. Can I? Called.
1: Can I just ask a question back to pre-man manipulation? What percent of carbon would be in those different places pre-human
2: i'd have to look it up okay i think it's on my pegboard i mean is it are
1: we like way out of line like is it very very different
2: no it's one reason people have trouble understanding climate change is because a very subtle change has a quite significant impact right the the and people don't understand why going from 350 parts per million mm-hmm. co2 to 400 or right. 400 to 500 does this matter to me and the a- answer is because it's invisible right to you right. you don't think it's significant but if you take something and you imagine it was in a glass of water and you were adding something and that you could tolerate it when it was light pink but it would taste terrible as it turned purple hmm. um you know and you probably sure added too much sugar to your tea and it became and it's a small amount when you're sensitive to it that can that can matter to the and and again we need to go to atmospheric physics and have the okay the climate modelers tell us and Mm -hmm. and what they what they tell us matches with what we observe
1: i am just so interested in the history of surfing in this state the history of the the open beaches act in this state and and I, I we want to hear a little bit about your story growing up here on the Texas coast and, and how you came to be an icon surfer here in Texas. I don't know if I'm an
3: icon or not. but
1: <laughs> You're an icon of something,
3: Alice. Some people have called me other things. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I really appreciate the, being involved in this and uh, hope to do more in the future. But uh, I grew up in a small town east of Houston called Liberty it's the third oldest town in uh, the state it's got a lot of history there and my father was a rancher slash fire chief slash city judge kind of like andy griffith <laughs> and uh he ranching was his uh, obsession and so i was working cows all the time but when i Turned 13, and the family went down to Galveston for a little vacation. huh. And the first day there, I saw they were renting surfboards for $6 a half day. I rented one, and then I went back the next two days and paid $10 for the entire day. I was wow. thir- I was 13 at the time. And this, le- we don't have to ask how old you are, but what decade are we in here, Ellis? Uh, way back. Way back. <laughs> but,
0: come on. Well,
3: <laughs> uh, 60s, would it be? Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it would. It was 1963. Okay. Was, 1963. A, at the beach. But wow. the, the next year I turned 14. I got my driver's license. The dumbest law that the state of Texas has ever had. And what happened then was. You mean the one letting people drive when they're 14? 14. 14 years old. Yeah. That makes uh, no sense to me now. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so I'm glad they raised that limit. But uh, I, dad, when he was looking for the truck, more times than not, it was at the beach instead of the ranch. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just had a great time at the beach. Uh, Galveston was the first place I went to. There was another beach that was a little bit. Galveston was eighty-five miles from my house. Um,
1: what was it about the beach? I mean, obviously you you got into surfing. You rented that board. You started surfing. But when you were when you were at the beach, were you always surfing, or were you just hanging out? Was it there? Some- was it something about being there beyond the sport of surfing that that drew you there all the time i I don't know i just loved the beach first time i ever went
3: there i was five years old and we had pictures of me and my friends building sandcastles out there and uh that's kind of analogous to building a front row beach house let
0: let me ask a quick question (laughs) here so this is in 1963 you're 14 years old you discover surfing you're the son of a rancher is this sort of cowboy boots cowboy hat kind of life that you were involved in up there in liberty and is that kind of what you guys did every day Did you work cattle did
3: you you know uh, hunted fish work cattle yeah went swimming it, you know one, one of the funny things about my mom when I was young uh, when I wanted to do something and she didn't want me to to do it she'd say I guess if everyone else jumped in the lake you would too that was a <laughs> really really poor argument on her part I know, because, so that's a good idea. <laughs> because I was usually the first one in the lake.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, so so you uh you would you would spend all your time on the beach, uh and this was at a point where goodness, it was the sixties, Texas I mean, you would drive right on the beach, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh as a matter of fact, that
3: fifty six GMC pickup with a headache rack and the toolbox in the back and yeah. the guns yeah. behind the seat. Uh, I drove up and down the coast from uh, Sabine Pass almost all the way to Mexico. Wow. Cutting donuts the whole time. Uh, back then, wow. when I was in high school, I would drive down the west end of the Galveston Seawall. And at that time, there was a ramp where you could drive straight onto the beach and drive all the way to the San Luis Pass on the west end, 18 miles away. Or if it was uh, wintertime and the surf was up, I could drive down there, make a U-turn, and go back to town and park in front of the seawall on the beach wow that's amazing no moss
1: really uh no yeah no no it's it's not the way we do it anymore but uh boy that's a romantic period of time to to think back to you know there is something historic about that too which is that you know the beach was kind of the first road in Texas, historically, that's how people would move around. It's true in California, too, you know? A- absolutely. That's one of the reasons why
3: uh, we have the right to drive on the beach is because it was used. There were stagecoaches, and right. mail was delivered by going down the beach because there were no roads inland. Yeah,
1: well, it is. It's, it's a beautiful stretch of shoreline. I think that for those uh, folks who are listening that have never been to the Texas coast, you probably don't think about it when you think of your magical beach in your mind's eye. But uh, the Texas coast is a gorgeous shoreline. Uh, barrier islands along, I would say, not quite all of it, but most of it. Damn near the whole stretch, 387 miles. 387 right? miles of shoreline it's a long that's a lot of beach it's, it's a lot of beach and you, you don't think about texas as being home to that much shoreline but it is and of course where you have that much shoreline and that kind of texas attitude of yeah, there's something about the cowboy attitude and the surfer attitude that are kind of similar. Oh, do you there's, think? That's, okay, that's a great question. Totally. The, the, you, oh, sir, yeah. We How were is, talking about it said, yesterday. Said you said surf both, alone. Since
0: you're both of them, <laughs> <laughs> what is, the, what is the, the connection between the surfer attitude and the cowboy ranching attitude?
3: Uh, well, uh, surfers, uh, surfing is an individual sport yeah it's not a team sport so when you're out there sitting on your surfboard bobbing up and down with 20 other people that you may know or may not about the only thing that's said in in most cases is my wave yeah or maybe someone will be real nice and say hey nice wave guy that's about it i mean we're we're individuals uh organizing surfers is like herding chickens
1: yeah yeah
0: (laughs) and uh so would this be to take this analogy one step further uh you know, the the cowboy on the horse, you're out there. You don't say a lot, right? I mean, there's not a lot of people to talk to. It's the water horse. You're surfboard. You're out there. You're sitting, you kind of sit the same way. When you're sitting up, you straddle it. Yeah, you, you know, are. it's a little bit, you know. I it's mean, like there's a saddle. A, and it kind of bobs like a horse when you're <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Okay, Okay. Well, uh, I, <laughs> I do
1: think that there's just a Western – I mean, surfing is a Western sport, and uh, – I think it has a lot to do with what you were talking about the the solitude of it collecting your thoughts um being communing with nature by yourself even if you're out there with a in a group of 20 other surfers like you say you're not it's not like you're chit-chatting it up it's it's almost a communion it's almost a uh there's a respect of of nature in the space and uh which is really cool and it's it it totally overlays with kind of this Western ethos of the cowboy alone on the horse, walk, riding out over the horizon with with nothing but his uh, his or her own you know cunning and guile to kind of work your way through life and death on the on the plains and in the mountains. I mean, come on, there's there's totally a similarity. Yeah, I, you know, if you want to get away from the you know the. The problems
3: that you have in your life you can just go get on a surfboard and have a great time you don't have to think about that stuff yeah you know sean tompkins talked about that on the next well podcast with rob
0: nixon about the intimacy and the emotional power mm-hmm. of surfing which was
3: really amazing interview oh yeah sean's a spiritual guy when it comes to surfing yeah <laughs> a great
1: surfer too yeah world champion right world champion legend um but anyway so so Tell me about the Texas surfing culture back in the 60s. I mean, what kind of folks were you seeing? Were, were you seeing a lot of surfboards in the water back then? Well, let me go back a little further than that. Yeah, for sure. Back to the 1930s. Oh, wow. Uh,
3: there was actually surfers in Texas at that time. Senator Babe Schwartz, uh, Jeez. who has been my mentor for the last 20 years, uh, he was a surfer in Galveston. Uh, another famous person who surfed in Galveston at that time was Dr. Dorian Paskowitz. Who both of those passed away fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Doc Pasquitz uh, raised I don't know five or seven kids in a camper, m- moving around the country, around the world, just being a doctor and surfing all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just I think I saw a documentary about uh, this there. Guy. There was a, a documentary about him. Yeah, and uh, well, it, it's just so much fun out there there you there's you can get out there and enjoy the 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 waves the power i mean one of the most amazing things you can have when you're surfing you can have a six second ride that's the best ride you've ever had in your life you can also have a 30 second ride that's the best ride you've ever had in your life Mm -hmm. if you look at pro surfing contest yeah those rides last six to eight seconds they're in the best Well, waves that's in the like, world and it's like
0: wonderful. it's like riding a bull that's an 8 second deal in the uh, National Rodeo Association. Uh, the,
3: the landing is a lot easier and the, and, <laughs> and, the, you, and <laughs> you don't get shit on your shoes, you know ab- what I mean? Absolutely <laughs> or in your face. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm curious to know when you were a kid growing up surfing in Texas, was it was it main were you Did you get weird looks with your board in the back of the truck? Uh, Absolutely. We
3: got weird looks anyway because we didn't have Buzz haircuts. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we got pulled over by the DPS one day going to the beach, and we all had long hair, and uh, they hassled us for about 20 minutes before they let us go. It's just We we looked like we were juvenile delinquents. I guess yeah, and a bunch mind. of hippies going to the beach. Yeah, that was before hippies, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Little did they know your dad was a judge and you were a rancher's son. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that looks can, can be deceiving. Yeah.
1: You know, Texas is an interesting place. It's it, uh there's it's full of contradictions as as are most places, of course. But uh you know, the rest of the country would probably think about Texas as this kind of conservative uh deep 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 red state which is of course true today but texas happens to be home to one of the most if not the most uh public beach laws uh in the country in the united states and uh, it's called the open beaches act and uh ellis you've you've got some you've got some history here with this what was it 1959 59 yes uh it, the open beaches act uh, is the law
3: that uh, guarantees that everyone has a right to use the entire beach from in my words the water to the weeds the line of vegetation it's, yeah it's a public beach easement and uh, where the open beaches act came from is uh, state representative bob eckhart in 1958 he was a fisherman he loved to fish and he was driving down the west galveston beach because at that time there was no road that went the entire 18 miles to the west end he was headed to one of his favorite uh fishing spots at san louis pass when he encountered a barbed wire fence that went
1: across the island and out into the water and he said "They can't do this this is a public beach so he was dry. He was trying to go up and down the beach, right? As like like using it like a road, basically like a road, which yeah. is
3: what it was
0: then. Yeah, and absolutely. a lot of surf fishermen do. You and, gotta and move and up
3: and down the beach to find the fish. Uh, that yeah. that section of the beach is is often quoted as one of the places where stagecoaches and the mail was delivered along that part of the coast. Right. But uh, he, he he thought that you know this is this is a public beach. They can't do that. And when he got back, he, he did some research and found that there was no part of the state law that claimed it was a public beach and for public access and so in 1959 the legislature was in session again and, and a, as an aside there in texas our legislature meet, under our constitution meets once every other year for 140 days and they go through uh, have to consider about five or six thousand bills it's it's a real rodeo there yeah but uh bob went back to the uh to the legislature. And he filed a bill, which became the Open Beaches Act. And as most legislative sessions are, they're very raucous and things don't get done. of the 5,000 bills, maybe 100 or 300 pass. And Mm -hmm. the session ended before that bill came up. Yeah. And so he went to the Price Daniel, who was also from my hometown, Liberty, and asked for a special session the The governor the constitution allows the governor to call special sessions whenever necessary usually they're not necessary but in this case the governor said yeah uh, this beach is public we need to do something about it well, we are continuing to have a
0: great time at the International Ocean Film Festival, Tyler. And this morning, we're on Sunday morning. It is an absolutely beautiful day on uh, San Francisco Bay. And uh, this morning's program was the student film competition. And we are pleased to have a couple of student filmmakers join us today.
1: And would you all introduce yourselves, please?
4: Hi, I'm Abby, and I'm 12.
1: My name is Arjun, and I'm 15. It's so cool to have you guys here. Uh, tell us and our audience a little bit about the film you made.
5: Okay, so our film is called The Ennor of Today. And Ennor is a locality in the north of Chennai. Chennai is a, is a big city off the coast of Bay of Bengal in the south Indian state of Tamil Nadu. And what's so, Im- what's so I guess, unique or significant about Ennor is that it is decimated with pollution. Ennor literally in Tamil is Ettor, which means eight towns or villages. That's a that's a conglomeration of eight villages in the area. It's Ennor. And what's happened in Ennor is that a lot of the a lot of coal power plants, thermal power plants, they have they have established their place in the area and they're causing a lot of pollution <laughs> and it effects on the on the on the communities there and also the The environment and how both of those are interconnected most of these communities are fishing communities they Mm -hmm. they rely upon fish as their main source of sustenance and with fishing going down actually because of these environmental issues they're losing a lot of their income and sustenance Mm -hmm. Uh, before we go into the film which I really loved uh, tell us
0: where you live and how old you are and where you go to school
4: So um, we live in Bainbridge Island. It's a 30-minute ferry ride from Seattle. And we actually moved there just a few months ago. Um, So we're pretty new there. And I'm 12, and he's 15.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I note one of the things that I wanted to ask you in watching the film and about the impact of the Mm -hmm. power plants was the coal fly ash. Mm -hmm. Uh, It looked like the disposal Mm -hmm. was simply open into the
5: estuary. Is that what they're doing with the coal fly ash? Mm -hmm. Somewhat, actually, yeah. because there are a few places where the ash goes the first place which I guess the most intuitive is air pollution because sure. the ash literally just goes mm-hmm. into the air, and I am not exactly familiar with air pollution in Ennor, but it certainly is there the air is quite a polluted one mm-hmm. you, can, you can see that when you go there. The mm-hmm. second is when it gets into the waterways actually because the mm-hmm. fly ash some of it does go into the water. there are some areas in the film yeah. that we were that we showed that were actually a lot of water just actually mm-hmm. on ash. The third I guess most dramatic is just fields of ash. Mm -hmm. You could play a game of football on the field of ash, literally. And it's just, of course, it's a little bit of a little thin layer, but it's so compacted. That's how much ash that has come. And actually, surprisingly, we saw a white-bellied sea eagle just nesting on top of one of those ash fields. Wow. You know, And
0: coal fly ash is, depending on what the coal source is, can be very toxic and have heavy metals in it. Uh, It is a very fine substance. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that the The way it would cover a reef, or if if, mm-hmm. if it's in the water,
5: is going to be pretty yes. devastating. Did you guys see that? Uh, we didn't go to a reef, or the we didn't go to a reef or anything. But what we did see was the how wetlands in many mm-hmm. areas, or actually former wetlands, let's call it because they're not really wetlands. They don't look like wetlands anymore because of the ash. Were affected, of course. My because the activist and journalist we were working with, Nityanand Jayaraman, or Niti as we called him, he was saying. I was wondering at there I was just marveling at four pelicans on a area with some amount of ash. But he was saying this is an extremely low number compared to what usually what could be there
1: if the pollution was not such a problem like it is mm-hmm. here. So, have you in your with your own eyes have you guys seen a drop in wildlife? Like, is it obvious that this development is creating problems? Like.
4: In fish populations, yes, yeah, I, I don't think personally I've not been there long enough to uh-huh. actually see the drop in wildlife with my eyes, yeah. but yes, we know for a fact that the fish populations are being affected, so in in fish terms, yes, the, that cool. is happening.
5: But I uh, uh, just for, just to say uh, the we didn't really see that many fish though, so we were already we came when it was really bad. We left when it was actually really bad too, so it was kind of a very it was it kind of plateaued. In a sense Interesting
0: Are are you from that region of uh, India Or did you travel there To make the film
5: I am not from there myself But my parents were born there So my parents immigrated Uh. to the US Mm -hmm. I was born My sister was Both of Mm -hmm. us were born in the US Mm -hmm. And we we actually went there To spend time with our grandmother Ah Who lives there Oh very cool mm-hmm. So
4: our original in- intention Was not to make the film But uh, seeing the problems there We decided that You know there's, You can see it Everywhere else in the world it's, it's always there And we decided To make a film To you know see, Show one of the Examples of this
1: so that's an interesting uh, step to take, a film. You know, you could have done other things, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You could have written a mu- a, an album or something, <laughs> but you decided to uh, make a film. Do you, is this something that you guys collaborate on uh, otherwise? Have you made other films? Uh, both of us. I've made a
5: film with my, the organization I'm part of Airstor Oceans, which is a youth, youth-led conservation organization based in the Bay Area. I've made a film with them before, but not one with my mm-hmm. sister. This is a completely new experience in the sense. Mm-hmm. And actually, to address your question about why it was a mm-hmm. film, we thought that, of course, there are many films about developing countries that are shown, oh gosh, in, in Indonesia, how the palm oil is decimating the local habitat, the, I mm-hmm. believe, I'm unsure about this, the monkeys, and how it's used in many products. But we wanted to show the bigger theme that this is not just a problem endemic to third world countries.
4: Also, media is a great way to be in a certain place, even if you're not there. So that's also something that drove our decision to make a film.
5: And I think of it as a two senses versus five senses. If you are right there, you, you can taste some things in your mouth sometimes. You can smell it. You can, you can feel it. You can touch it. You can... You can see it and you can hear it. But in film, you get about 40% of that. You can hear and see. But I guess that counts for more than 40% yeah. because those are our two major senses, I guess.
1: Well, you guys did an amazing job of editing the film and making mm-hmm. the film. Um, one of my favorite shots uh, of the movie, Peter, was the shot with the the muddy ash mm-hmm. in the hand and squeezing it so you could really the opening. feel the... Um, you could feel it mm-hmm. even though it, even though that doesn't count on your list mm-hmm. I, I could I derived information mm-hmm. that allowed me to have like a tactile understanding of what that stuff was
4: that was actually taken on one of those ash fields so there's I
1: actually picked
5: up you actually
4: picked it up. Uh, a
1: little bit of ash
5: and I was kind of squeezing it in my hand and my sister filmed it mm-hmm. so we
4: thought it'd be a good idea to have that touch sensor great shot.
5: Yeah great shot. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. You. yeah, that was great. And did you tell us about the community
0: there and how the population has responded to the changes in the fishery and mm-hmm. in
5: the habitat and the environment? It's, it's a very interesting juxtaposition where they are because they clearly know what's happening to them. They actually, but they're in such a desperate state. So what happens is that they don't have much power to change their situation, right? So what happens, they go and some of them actually work in the very power plants that are actually decimating mm-hmm. them in promise of an income. Wow, yeah. So this is it's, it's a very ironic situation in the yeah. sense.
4: Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of them do not want to carry on what their parents did being fishermen, and we saw that a lot of them want to be policemen, um, accountants, so they really, they, they're not looking to carry on what their parents did and being fishermen. They're
5: transitioning mm-hmm. into the modern Indian economy
1: in a sense, yeah. but mm-hmm. not for the reasons that most people do. Well, let me ask you, so, uh, India is a country that is changing very quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a thing we see along the American shoreline, is that uh, shorelines are always in a state of change. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're described as a community of his, you know, of people that fished and lived in the water, you lived using the water, had a relationship with the water. And now with kind of, I guess we can say industrialization, mm-hmm. modern uh, power plants, dirty power plants, they've not only... I mean, they're transitioning the economy. That's why those power plants are there, you know. And uh, what what is what do you guys think about that? I mean, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I mean, you, certainly the world changes, but you're you, we have a couple young people here. What do y'all think? I really think that things should be done in balance. There's nothing such
5: as completely good or completely bad, mm. because that's a complete black and white way to look at the world. For example, a power plant that that you that perhaps uses is a transitionary ten, transitionary power plant. Of course, there should be very few to none no fossil fuel burning power plants in the far future because of the of the effects. But at least things should start transitioning, maybe using less fossil fuels, improving efficiency rates. One cannot just go from 0 to 100 in in conservation, but but to see negative steps being taken actually is is the is the complete mm-hmm. is an incorrect thing to do because instead of going a small step Towards your goal, you're actually going a few steps away from your goal in the sense that you are all you are, you are not setting the com- local communities up for success, yeah. and at the same time, you're just you're relying upon resources that could vanish potentially in a very at a very mm-hmm. fast rate.
4: I think development should not come at the cost of decimating these people's lives. And I think, as Arjun said, there should be a balance where people are able to continue what they currently have, but at the same time have some benefits of development, and so that everything just doesn't get traded in for development.
0: It's a very uh, great... I think that you're quite right, an excellent point of view. And a, that's the trick of it around the shorelines all around the world, is how do you balance the historic uses, the community and the culture, the environmental health, and our sort of incessant desire for economic development all over the world, and it's a really tough balance.
5: Actually, in in that sense, People transitioning away from fishing is a good idea economically because they have a lot more potential to be someone who works in the tech industry, someone who works as an engineer, someone who works as a doctor, but the reasons why they're doing it should be very different. Mm-hmm. The reason should mm-hmm. be advancement. The reason should not be, I've lost all of this here. I'm desperate. I'm mm-hmm. going to the next place just to get a job. It should
4: be like more of a want than an need.
5: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So when you, um,
0: when you look at the situation there, are there things that make you hopeful about
5: Inor? Absolutely. The people there are very, very aware. They know exactly what is going on, but there needs to be, there needs to be international awareness of this issue because one cannot just group all third world issues into just third world issues. No. Because every third world world issue is a unique issue as of itself. For example, there's the one I was talking about in Indonesia, the one in Ennor, and they should be treated like we do these first world issues of as course. their own problem. 100%. Exactly. And the same solution cannot be used for Ennor as Indonesia. Of course, we can draw a pattern, but we cannot use a generalization fallacy. You have to, you have, to have a specific case scenario and research it and use logic to mm-hmm. simply address a solution, wow. that, that you uh, create a solution that would <laughs> work. Arjun... Are you sure you're 15 years old?
6: <laughs> uh, last last I-
0: Welcome, everybody. This is Peter Ravel on the American Shoreline Podcast from EarthX in Dallas, Texas at Fair Park. Uh, Boy, there was a couple of things we wanted to do when we came up to EarthX, and uh, this interview is one of them. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the great state of Rhode Island is our guest on the podcast. Senator, welcome very much to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Good to be with you. Well, I really uh, was able to hear your remarks. Uh, I thought they were absolutely insightful and brilliant and compelling. Tell me what brought you from uh, Rhode Island down here to Dallas, Texas
7: uh, to attend EarthX. Uh, this is a gathering and perhaps the most prominent gathering of um Republicans who are interested in environmental and climate issues. And they're a little bit insurgents within their party because of the power of the fossil fuel industry over the party. So I would travel a considerable distance to help uh, be helpful and encouraging in any way that I can, because ultimately we are highly likely to need a bipartisan solution to avoid the calamities ahead. So uh, this is a great opportunity for me.
0: Fantastic, and I think those words are well-spoken. Calamity, I think, is, uh, people think it's a little alarmist. It is not, if you pay attention to the science and the facts. And bipartisan, no doubt, that is absolutely essential. What I was uh, drawn to in your remarks, Senator, was the description you gave about the reputation of the United States as a world leader and our failure to effectively respond to this to being a real threat to our standing in the world. Can
7: you help us understand that? Well, I'm the uh, son of a foreign service officer. Um, I'm also the grandson and the nephew of a foreign service officer. So that was kind of in the family and um, growing up in foreign countries, You learn firsthand how important America is in the world, and you learn that people across the world look at America in a slightly different way than they do other countries. There's an expectation about us. Indeed. And it's an expectation that for generations we have honored. Look at what the greatest generation did in World War II, rebuilding Japan and Europe afterwards, and then going on to build a great American economy. It really was a pretty remarkable thing. People expect American leadership, and right now we've walked out of Paris, we're pretending that climate change is a hoax, we're propagating all sorts of completely fabricated nonsense about the science, and that does not make America look good. Behind that problem with America um, is that our message has really been based on two pillars. One is democracy is the right way to go not autocracy and regulated market capitalism is the right way to go not corrupt managed economies right that's a tough message for us to sell if our democracy is failing to address climate change and if we're Persisting in protecting clear violations of basic rules of market capitalism, like the giant subsidies we give fossil fuel by letting them pollute for free.
0: Indeed. And I do think that you're quite right that when the United States sets the example that this is not serious, that it does not need to be taken seriously in the government policy sector and what we do with our laws, but in our economy, uh, I'll tell you there's a lot of folks out there in the world who don't want to deal with this either, and they take that cue. Uh, and w- the the confrontation I think you're laying out here is the reality is that the world is going to continue to teach us that this is a real problem and we're going to be late to the game. Yeah. And we're giving up that leadership yeah. internationally. And,
7: um, you know, you, you, this is a coastal show. Yes. And, and we're you're a coastal see, state. No, I'm a coastal state. And we're going to see an awful lot of harm done. From sea level rise, we're going to see an awful lot of harm done from fisheries that are migrating away from the people who fish them. Yes, we're going to see a lot of harm from the collapse of coral reefs as nurseries and as resources, and the people who are living close to the earth, yep, in particularly in foreign countries, who are going to suffer that harm, they are going to pay a price. Yeah, and when human beings pay a price. We want redress. It is a basic human nature. Uh, The first pair of words that a lot of kids will come up with are not fair right right every kid before they learn anything else they know what's fair and what isn't it's a basic part of our humanity and so when we in the wealthy first world and the wealthy advanced economies are propagating policies that cause a lot of harm right in among people who are much poorer and much more close to the land than we are when they suffer they're going to look for a cause. Yeah. And there we're going to stand just as... As, um, sitting at the starting line. Sitting at the starting line yeah. and setting a terrible example. Indeed. And and you know,
0: when you look at a country like the United States and and, and the wealth that we have and starting to see the uh, responses and the investment that Congress is making making in the disaster supplementals, billions of dollars going to the Corps of Engineers. Mayor de Blasio in New York, a ten billion dollar program to protect Manhattan. Right now a thirty-two billion dollar proposal in Galveston and Texas is to protect the port of houston somebody knows good good luck paying for that in bangladesh indeed and, and and we are acting on in some way in spite of our denial on our behalf but unwilling to take the leadership and to and putting these other people who are not in a position to handle the problem, don't have the resources. I do think that the retribution
7: risk here for the United States is real. It's very real. We've stepped back from leadership and that's a bad mistake always. We have compromised our argument that representative democracy is the way to go because if people have are suffering because of decisions made by a representative democracy yeah. that allowed itself to be corrupted by the fossil fuel industry so that it wouldn't act on plainly obvious science, you've got a problem on your hands. And when market capitalism is the other great pillar of value and we're not treating these fossil fuel companies under basic rules of economics, which are you put the externalities, the pollution into the right. price of the product, then we frankly aren't living our own values. Indeed. And when you're a values-based country and you don't live your own values, there's a price that you pay.
1: Yeah, Senator, I just want to uh, follow up on that because I, I do think that one of the interests, you opened up with this discussion about, you know, you, some of your colleagues, your red colleagues are, are here and they're kind of the black sheep of, of the family. Um, where do you think is the where's, where's the common ground that we can find um as as a as a country democrats and republicans where we can uh bring the fossil fuel industry which employs many many people and is a tremendous i mean here in texas the what they call it the energy coast i mean it's a hugely important part of people's lives here their livelihoods
7: how do we bring them into the fold how do you how would you lead on that The only solution that makes sense to me is putting a price on carbon. Uh, that makes the market work again. That is Econ 101. You don't get to have one factory that throws all its trash in the river and another factory that pays to clean up and have them compete and call that market economics. Everybody's got to be on a level playing field, and that means that when you're creating waste and pollution, you're responsible for that and you need to pay for that. That is what the fossil fuel industry has been resisting. It's been a multi-hundred billion dollar per year advantage to them. It is a big deal. They fight brutally hard to protect it in Washington. And I think once you have applied a price on carbon, you generate significant revenues. The bill that I've written is about $2.3 trillion in revenues over 10 years. With $2.3 trillion, you can transition – very comfortably to a renewable economy and you can invest in the type of carbon capture technology that allows fossil fuels to continue to have a role. If you don't do that, what you have basically foregone is the parachute. Right. I think. I think the fossil fuel industry ends up in the same place on the ground. The question is, have they plummeted without a parachute and landed with a terrible crash, mm. or have they managed and negotiated a safe landing? And a carbon price provides both the remedy to prevent the worsening of our climate change risk and the means for navigating the transition in a, in a pain-free way. In fact, according to Nobel Prize winning economists in a way that that if it's done at all right, actually improves economic lift for everybody.
0: Indeed, in the in the transition to the new economy, we can become leaders and industrial leaders in the next economy. Uh, the concept you're laying out is what you know in the in in the in the words of our conservative brethren is common sense. This yeah. is about personal responsibility. Yeah. Number one, number two, that you're responsible for your own messes. You yeah. don't get to, to take the uh, the waste that you're producing and impose the ramifications and cost on society as a whole. This is really straight down the middle conservative governing policy.
3: Yeah, isn't In
7: fact, that interesting? Yeah. And that part of what indicates so clearly that there's the hand of the fossil fuel industry in this politics because they're not being dragged into uh, socialistic or uh, you know top down or liberal types of thinking regulatory pressure it's not that this is yeah this is this is republican style economics in fact I spoke with uh, lindsey graham and I spoke last night and there must have been 10 people that came up to me today and said you know what funny <laughs> you were making the market argument right and your republican interlocutor was making the like taxpayer funded uh you know billionaire driven top down right. uh pick winners and losers argument i thought well yeah but that's kind of where the fossil fuel Isn't industry forced them <laughs> you know I'm but cr- we're back to I'm economics sorry. now and, and i want to go back to where we started because i'm a romantic about america i am an american exceptionalist i think that there is something special about this country and that we have a duty and a legacy and a future that is essential to the way the world turns out and right now we are not meeting our own values. Right. And if you compare the way we are behaving about climate change with the way the greatest generation behaved about a very yeah. different set of risks, we don't measure up at all well. We That's just a, don't measure up at all well. And from you know John Winthrop to Ronald Reagan, we've described ourselves as a city on a hill. And from Daniel Webster to Bill Clinton, we've called the world to the power of our example as a country. And if we're going to be that way, if we're going to be a city on a hill that enjoys the power of being the example to which the rest of the world aspires, you don't get to fake it. Well, You don't get to fake it. You got to really live it. And at the moment, the way we've let the fossil fuel industry have completely undue and improper influence on our politics and the way we've backed away from basic market principles in order to subsidize and protect and cosset this industry is a Terrible example. Oh. And it's not just a hypothetical because if you're one of those farmers, you're one of those fishermen, you're a herdsman, and you've lost your farm, you've lost your fishery, you've lost your herd, you can't graze, you, you know, and you are suffering and your family is in distress as a result, you're looking around and you're looking at us, yeah. and it's not a good look. Surely. We need to polish up our look here.
1: Can, I want to ask another question about kind of our psychology as a country right now. Obviously, it, it's uh i'm not the first one to describe us as like one of the most divided times in in our nation's history obviously we're coming into an election year there's a lot of talk by certainly the democratic uh uh candidates about uh uh climate change it's it's certainly in the in in the hopper of issues that are being talked about and i'm wondering um as and and i'm from california my my family's town was engulfed by fire yeah. uh two years ago yeah and um, um, there's an emotional reaction here. And I think that as the hurricane strengthen and as climate change and, and what you're talking about is a very sensible solution. Um, I'm wondering if uh, you I'm wondering if we and have by the, the way, yeah. I think
7: every every Republican who I can think of who has looked at the climate change problem and thought it through to a solution. They've all come to the same place. Yeah. A price on carbon that is revenue neutral, you don't use it to fund big government, you give it back to the American people, so it's a wash, you don't take money out of the economy, you give it all back, and it's border adjustable so that you can incent other countries to do the same thing and if they're not doing the right thing you can tariff up their products so that they pay a price for not being serious about climate change it's it's everybody comes to that carbon price that is revenue neutral and border adjustable so i'm basically saying yes to what all the republicans who have come to a solution have come to Thank you, Commissioner, for joining us on the
0: show and having us in your office and for your staff for setting this up for us. Uh, The General Land Office plays a critical role on the Texas coast, I think the lead agency in so many important programs. And uh, we were just uh, so uh,
6: happy to be able to sit down and talk to you about that today. Absolutely. It's great to be with you, Peter. And um, I'm glad we could follow up after our, our great discussion and giving an update in front of the legislature. Uh, here in Austin for this um, important session. This is a Harvey-focused agenda, as you can imagine, for the agency and for the people. So. Excited to, to to visit with you and dive deeper. Thank well, you, Commissioner. Uh, it's it is. I'll reiterate what Peter said. It is great to be here
1: and uh, really appreciate the time today. Uh, one of the things I wanted to open up with is, uh, of course, we we're going to get into the, the your, your responsibilities on the Texas coast as the land commissioner of Texas. But you come from a coastal family. You have tremendous coastal credentials. If I'm not mistaken, you were married on the main <laughs> shoreline. Um, so tell me a little bit about your your early memories uh, on. The American shoreline, from Maine to
6: Florida to Texas. Well, a lot of people don't know that I was uh, born Houston, and I would consider Houston a, a absolutely probably the largest coastal community there is in our in our country. I mean, we could probably debate on the population figures yeah. there. Yep. But um, and and I went to school at Rice, and we had the great floods of uh, of '94 when I was a freshman at Rice, and I'll never forget that. But yeah, I mean, would go to the main coast every summer growing up. In fact, outside of serving in Afghanistan. Um, I've been to Maine every summer of my life, and I'm 42 years old. Wow. Um, And the thing about Maine, it's, you know, obviously Kenny Bunkport, it's got a special place in the Bush family heart, but there's so many wonderful state and national parks, and now that we have two boys that are five and three, to be able to take them on the coastline on these hiking trails in the northeast is pretty pretty special during the summer. Um, But, you know, as land commissioner, unlike a lot of other states, the state actually maintains a lot of its own coastline. So uh, a big part of our charge in partnership with the Parks and Wildlife and TCQ is to make sure that we have enough recreational tourism for the millions of visitors that come to the Texas coastline every year. And it really is an underrated coastline, the Texas
1: coastline. So this is a wonderful opportunity to evangelize how great it is. Uh, you know, much of our audience when they when they think across America, when they think of uh, a beach on the American shoreline, they're going to conjure up Hawaii or you know maybe California or Maine, you know. But Texas really has an amazing coastline, an amazing history um, going way back to to recreating down in South Texas, the fishing industry, and uh, it's really awesome that you get. That's part of your portfolio here at the land office which is uh wonderful Uh, we wanted to ask you a little bit about your uh what you're working on currently with this texas coastal resiliency master plan this is a a long initiative that you began when you first came into office tell us a little bit about uh, why
6: you decided to uh, undertake this planning process and where we are now well going back to my my family roots i grew up in south florida and in high school i'll never forget hurricane andrew her, a category 4 storm that impacted South Florida. Um, forever changed that community. In fact, with Homestead Air Force Base shutting down, many would say that um, Homestead will never be the same again. I would later go back to teach in an inner-city high school after graduating from college. But as a victim of a hurricane, and based on that experience, I knew that if I ever came back to serve others, that I would focus on resiliency and preparing for storms. And so when I came into office in 2015, uh, it was reported to me that we... There were some great ideas out there, whether it was from Rice University or a Galveston to look at a coastal surge barrier system along the likes of what we've seen in the Netherlands. Even in New Orleans, after Katrina, that were built a full-blown coastal barrier system that was funded by the federal government. So we found savings in our budget to undertake that effort. We were told by the Corps it would be a very exhaustive five-year, $20 million process, the largest study of its kind, underwritten by the Corps of Engineers. We said, um, yes, everything is bigger in Texas, but when it comes to to coastal resiliency, this agency is going to have to step up to this challenge. So we found the savings in our budget, 50-50 partnership. Unfortunately, we did not complete that plan before Hurricane Harvey made landfall, uh, so we were unable to get congressional appropriation. But uh, Sabina Galveston was completed. Um, That is on the books, and we are well on our way to getting a state match to meet that federal uh, congressional appropriation, which would essentially be the phase one to the overall coastal barrier process. So uh, a lot of work ahead. We're very thankful for community stakeholders to be a part of that process, but uh, we got a long way to go. And it is. A, it, it, it's an amazing plan to see, Commissioner.
0: The uh, the uh, Texas Coastal Resiliency Master Plan is a, an impressive body of work. It pulls together so much uh, that needs to be addressed on the Texas uh, coast. From the math we did, it's 123 projects identified in that plan, 5.4 billion, we think, if we did the math right. But it is a big initiative, and the land office is in the lead seat on that thing.
6: Yeah, it's, it's important because it's not only looking at the engineering behind uh, storm surge barriers, which is important. A lot of people focus on that in the yep. ship channel, but there's billions of dollars in terms of beach renourishment, wetland mitigation, uh, making sure we're preserving this rich uh, biodiversity that we have in the Texas Gulf Coast. It also helps to take care of South Texas as you get closer to South Padre Island, Laguna Madre. It also... Um, further strengthens the Powderhorn Ranch conservation which is Fantastic. project which is the largest in the state of Texas in state history and that's a partnership taking some of the BP Deepwater Horizon spill lit- litigation money and partnering with Parks and Wildlife. Uh, my Even my aunt, uh, Laura Bush, was uh, a part of that effort and helping to secure some of the uh, easements on that. So all to say that it's wow. not just about protecting the ship channel. It's a- looking up and down the coast, looking at, um, I call them organic investments, which over the long run actually end up being a, uh, a larger return on your investment in in, in and um, protecting against storm surge,
0: it it really is fabulous the way it's the the comprehensiveness of the study in region one, which is the upper Texas coast you mentioned up at Galveston, Fort Bend County, over to Louisiana border, forty nine projects, five uh, four point nine billion, in region two, the mid coast, nineteen projects there. In region three a little bit further down the coast we're going south 27 projects and 13 in region four said so the the land office did a statewide comprehensive examination of the issues and and that this is the most specific project list i think the state has ever produced and it starts to look a little bit like the serious level of planning that louisiana undertakes with their coastal protection restoration authority and such an important step for the state of texas to get this thing down on paper and then, Commissioner, have some revenues to do something about it, which is also new. Uh, tell us about where you stand with the monies that are
6: you're managing. You're, boy, you guys are have a big job on that side. In terms of Harvey Relief. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So we were the first agency to take on a temporary housing mission uh, in response to a storm. So Louisiana had experimented with what they called a STEP program, which was a direct repair uh, up to 10,000 homes in hmm. response to the 16 flood season. FEMA wants to move more to that paradigm, and we agree, because um, a lot of legislators gave us calls saying we don't want travel trailers and MHUs in our in our neighborhood. So when it was all said and done, it was a billion-dollar line of credit that the, the federal government provided. Uh, they're doing follow-on uh, inspections and audits. We've had no findings, uh, and no abuse, and we've housed over 50,000 Texans through a, wow. a variety of programs. But we now manage the $10 billion HUD block grant, which will be even more challenging from a red tape perspective. um, Because roughly the register rules have not been uh, published yet by the federal government. It's been close to two years. Yeah, that's correct. And and so I've had to take on my own party um, in Washington DC and be bold and represent Texans. That's who I'm elected to serve. And this idea of potentially sweeping core money to, to the wall project, uh, to me, is unforgivable. Right. And so I, along with a lot of other folks, I'm not alone on this, um, are standing up for Texans during this, um, during this time. Well, the, the needs on the coast are real. Uh, that's obviously
0: well set out in the master plan you produced, and also the Corps of Engineers Texas Coastal Plan, which we... Uh, got a briefing up there. There is more work to do on the Texas coast and more at risk than ever before. And uh, to see the land office and the core join forces to really try to tackle this is is impressive. I have to ask about, you've got the, the Harvey money that you're working with, and you've got this new GoMisa phase two revenue source, which is another powerful economic uh, asset for the land office to manage.
6: Tell us about Gomesa. GoMisa. So oddly enough, during the Appropriations Committee um, hearing, I, I received one question. And it was in relation to Gomisa. What is it? And what's, mm-hmm. what's it going for? And now that there's increased revenues flowing through uh, the Gulf of Mexico Security um, Act um, program and with increased revenues coming off of it for right. the state of Texas, that, that will uh, benefit the coast. And so we're protecting it. Uh, so far, there hasn't been a power grab for that, uh, for that money. Uh, We believe that we are the strongest agency since we're on the coast 24-7 and have shown a good partnership with Parks and Wildlife, TCQ, and other agencies that help to source a lot of these important projects. So um, we continue to fight for that. In in addition to KEPRA, you know, a lot of of Texans don't know that um, that used to be a dedicated account for this agency. Yeah, back in the day and two work. sessions ago was moved to general revenue so yeah. uh, that could easily be swept it, let's say we have uh, a correction on oil and gas prices and we have a tight budget so every session I've been fighting to get that back to a dedicated account much needed uh, which is an impo- arguably the most important federal matching program that this state has so we're fighting for flexibility we're fighting to protect existing money and maybe even allowing uh, since we do generate revenues off of state lands to be utilized for coastal protection wow. uh, projects as well wow We've got Gary Glick
0: with us today. Gary is a special guest on the American Shoreline podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about Gary. He is president of Friends of the RGV Reef, an organization in Texas that is responsible for the largest industrial-scale artificial reef project. The in first
8: industrial-scale uh, nursery reef in the Gulf of Mexico. In the, the biologists tell me in the world, but I find... That's such a good idea and it works so well I find it hard to believe that somebody else hadn't already figured it out. Well, are you convinced that you're on the right path? Oh and yeah, do you there's... have any do you have any doubts about what you're doing? Zip zero nala. I mean, you know, we can see it. We can see it on our pathometers. We go out there and we see these fish. We get reports from the fishermen, and and you know they're 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 telling us about the size fish that they're catching, and everybody can see. You know, we've got good pathometers. Everybody can see this this swarm of fish, and then we see what gets caught, and it's you know, twenty percent snappers from elsewhere, and eighty percent little ones, and of course we get the the pelagics are there. But you know, to have to have a constant set of forage fish, like working over the big pile. Constant set of forage fish with birds working over the big pile. That tells us that the big pile is working. We we have A lot of fish A lot of fishermen On this reef There's Every decent weekend There's several boats Out there And they go out there And they all catch Their four fish per person And they're they're all catching Um, you got to have A lot of fish for that
0: Yeah And that's uh, And that's daily And so you can tell Just by the economic activity And the guides And you're getting Good reports From them I assume Oh yeah Well, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. So uh, where do you see this going from here? What are the uh, next steps for the RGB reef?
8: Well, that's a toughie because, you know, Mark Twain said, old buildings Prostitutes and even politicians Become respectable with time And part of what we've done Is become respectable Um, We've been a little bit smart we've been smart enough to recognize good ideas when we see and hear them but mostly we've just been doggedly persistent and the more persistent you are the luckier you get and we've just been really lucky we've been we've been funded by a multitude of entities and people businesses individuals um, those that's the whale money we get a little bit of minnow money which is people that donate 25 or 50 or hundred dollars uh, on our on our website which is rgvreef.com and you know <laughs> give me an excuse and I'll say it 10 more times rgvreef.com <laughs> our, our, our <laughs> and
6: face- there's and there's a, a donate good. button right there's no, a donate no.
8: button our Facebook page has got all kinds of interesting video and a few fish pictures on it, and it is it rgvreef on Facebook and no it's friends of rgvreef on Facebook there and, you go and, and it discusses what we're catching what we're doing and, and what the science is good follow good follow I follow good um, follow it's a good follow (laughs) um but if things go continue to go our way, we're going to get stupid big. I mean, stupid big. I might have wow. a, I might have a budget. I'll have a budget of about three hundred thousand this year, and I'm hoping to have a budget of about half a million dollars next year. And I'm we're really working to get the throughput. When you start talking about moving twenty thousand tons of material through a two acre site and moving them across the bulkhead, um, there's lots there's lots to tend to, and. Right. I think we need if we have three or four more seasons like that where things go our way and where we can where we we can be really efficient with our marine transport and and we can build you know, you balance and you know, there is no black book with yellow stripes that's that is low relief reef or reef building for dummies and especially with the low relief reef, we're making this up as we go along with the best advice that we can get out of our scientific advisors and so, okay, so we've got this much of this now how much do we need of that so that we can have a conveyor belt of fish that will provide that fish for the kiddo and enough fish that the that we can put some fish back in the gulf we'll have more than what get caught well doing the work of the Lord I would say
0: ladies and gentlemen Gary Glick president of Friends of the RGV Reef working hard down there in deep south Texas to make the world a better place Gary to you and your organization all of the folks who participate CCA uh, Burlington Northern the, the folks with the boats, I mean, TPWD, TPWD Dale Shively, uh, what an effort. And I know you're getting rich doing this because uh, <laughs> I know you don't get paid. I'm just kidding. None of these guys do this for money. They do it for love. And to have those uh, those kids have an opportunity to maybe do what you did when you were a kid, get offshore, no big charters, a place to catch a fish. What a, what an agenda.
6: Father.